0: these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored well hello and welcome to tfm's local books and comic show for star trek and i'm just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and so excited to have with me casey pettit as i honestly we have just a jam-packed show for everybody so much so much (laughs) it's like all the things all the things came out at once which as we're talking I'm thinking and I'm realizing there's one thing I didn't even put on the news that I that we need to talk about. And so uh, but before we get there, because we've got so much to talk about in the news, um, just a reminder, you know, you can find us wherever you get a podcast. And when you do that, uh, if you're listening on any podcatcher or you know, any uh, podcast service of choice, please just subscribe so you get the show as soon as it drops. Uh, of course, you can follow us on all the social medias like uh, Instagram at Trek FM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at Trek FM, And of course, you can find the entire website at trek.fm. See all the shows we're doing. We've got the listeners only discussion group on, on Facebook called the Babel Conference, where you can join listeners from all of the world uh, and talk about all the different shows here on the network. And of course, uh, if you would like to help out the network and we could definitely use your help. Go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and see how you can be part of our team. We've got some great associate producers here actually on literary treks, one of them being Casey Pettit. And, of course, you've also got Greg Rosier. We really do appreciate all the support that they've given us over the years to make sure the network can keep coming to you and all of the shows uh, and again, we're just kind of at that place where we're lower than we would need to be to even cover the costs for the network every month. And so go over to patreon.com slash Trek and see how you can be part of the team. So, Casey, we uh, were not necessarily joking, really, uh, when we said we got to talk about all the things because it feels like all of the news has dropped about new things that are coming out. And of course, it feels like we have a thousand comics to talk about today. <laughs> Uh, But some of the news is, one, we've got a new novel that is going to be coming out in May of 2023. It's probably the least kept, uh, the least best kept secret in the world uh, that Dayton Ward will have a brand new Star Trek novel that will be coming out. And it is for Star Trek Discovery called Somewhere to Belong. And uh, he said that it's uh, between the show's third and fourth seasons. So I know you're a big fan of Star Trek Discovery, And so how have you been enjoying the books as they've been coming out? Uh, have they been like the Picard books in the sense that I, f- I feel like they've been really good?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like the Discovery books have done a really good job of exploring all the characters. And, um, you know, from, you know, the early novels, including one by Dayton, <laughs> they have you know explored all the different characters including like prime lorca and uh georgeo and i'm yeah i'm really looking forward to this one i i just saw the news um today as we're recording this and i got very excited because it 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 kind of spans a gap between the third and fourth seasons like you said and gives the characters some time to really contemplate their choices of following Michael mm-hmm. into the future. And I think, um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't put something like that in much better hands than Dayton Ward. And I think this, uh, could be a really, really interesting character study for, for these characters that we've been watching. And so, yeah, may can't come soon enough.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, and of course, you know, we've, uh, got coming out. We know as well, the strange new worlds book by John Jackson Miller. Uh, So that's going to be fantastic. So we've got a nice lineup, uh, starting, uh, coming out next year, which is excellent because, you know, it took so long for this year for us to get any new books. Uh, and of course this week we'll be talking about Una McCormick's second self, which is very exciting. And so I'm glad to be able to, to dive into something new there. Well, we've got a brand new, uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds comic series. It's going to be a four-issue series. um, And it's going to be uh, between the first season and the second season. So kind of like they've been doing with the Stargazer series that we're getting. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an Illyrian Enigma. That's what it's called. Uh, And it's exciting because, hey, Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson are going to be collaborators on this series. And... We're going to be, of course, dealing with the Fallout with Commander Unachin Riley being arrested uh, for the genetic modifications that she has as an Illyrian. So I could not be more excited about um, a comic announcement, honestly, because I loved Strange New Worlds. I didn't think I was going to. And the thought of this comic coming out just really excites me.
1: Yeah, this is really fun that they do these comic series between each season to kind of just fill in some gaps, uh, kind of like one that we'll talk about in just a little bit with the Stargazer comics, also written by Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson. Um, And they do such a good job of telling just a succinct little story between the seasons. And I'm really interested in this one because we ended season one of Strange New Worlds on a cliffhanger with her being arrested And usually in kind of these, you know, the books and the comics, they kind of have to be careful not to tread on the ground that they're going to cover in the show. So it's really interesting that this comic is sounds like it's going to pick up right where the show left off, which really makes me wonder what's going to happen at the beginning of season Mm two. Mm hmm.
0: I am right there with you. Uh, and it makes me wonder, are they going to do the thing where, like they did in Lower Decks, where they solve it in one episode, basically? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so they're kind of priming the pump for that. But it does maybe feel like there is some work that they could do with helping us understand this whole situation in a way that we couldn't necessarily on screen. It gives us an opportunity to understand this in a way we couldn't necessarily on screen because we can get some depth. And, and basically, I, I think maybe we could get some backstory is really what I feel like this kind of might be. So uh, to me, that's that's exciting when, you know, you're using these type of things to fill in details that might just be too much to try and cram into an episode um, or episodes, you know, who knows how, how many episodes they would do to, to resolve that story.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, I think, you know, they've, they've done it so well. And in between other ones, we, we had some, um, questions at the end of our last recording for the first Stargazer comic, you know, about where it was going. And in some ways that makes it fun just because yeah, we can, it, it kind of keeps us guessing but it also just gives us that little extra bit of knowledge when we go back into the season and I, yeah i hope they don't spend the entire season <laughs> investigating this like in the show i also hope they don't just like wrap it up in the uh you know the cold open for the first episode and, <laughs> and yeah treat it like shacks uh, we don't talk about that we that was that was in the past <laughs> we're moving yeah. on but um, yeah, I, I'm excited for this. It's always fun to see uh, anything by Kirsten, really. Um, and then her team ups with Mike Johnson are always really good.
0: Yeah. No, I agree with you. Uh, well, another big comic announcement that just came out that starting in March 2023, we're going to be at an ongoing series um, called Star Trek Defiant, which follows Worf and a handpicked crew like Spock, Belana Torres and lore, and much more, and as they face down a galaxy-spanning threat shocker. Uh, <laughs> and this one's called Defiant. And so, you know, we've all now seen the Picard trailer, uh, and so I'm wondering if this is basically going to help fill in a bunch of the behind-the-scenes uh for that series, you know, where you're going to... They're going to have this as a way to help us understand where characters are and how they got there um, so that by the time we get to that, you know, we'll have seen the season almost by the mm-hmm. time this comes out or at least part of it. Um, yeah, that they're going to use this as one of the ways to to fill in, especially for a character like Worf, who we know has quite a few changes coming. Uh, and so, yeah, this is fascinating to me. And, you know, love Worf, love the Defiant, love Balana Spock, eh not so much lore but uh, this this looks very interesting to me.
1: Yeah, and the uh on the on the cover image it looks maybe like Row, it's hard to tell. It
0: looks like Row. Uh at least that's that's that it is what I see as well when I look at yeah. that. It doesn't look like Balana, which is kind of strange. Yeah. Uh so but you know, that would be cool too to have her as a character. I don't know why uh, you know, she wouldn't be one. She's definitely someone who could pop up, uh, in a series like this. So that yeah. to me is also kind of fantastic.
1: I'm very interested in this series though. Um, a little trepidatious, but, uh, especially if you're, if it's been a long time since we've judged a book by its cover, uh, when I was first scrolling through the the show notes here and saw the cover, it reminded me of like an old nineties, uh computer game or something, mm-hmm. Just especially lore. He doesn't even, it doesn't look quite right, but I, I hope you're right that there is some sort of connection between this and the new season of Picard, um, especially with Worf and with lore and tying some of, some of those things up. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, and, you know, it does make me, it, it. I think this really does set up the idea that there is a lot of story to be told, um, especially for uh, characters that we saw in, in other series in the 24th century that, you know, um, we might not really ever see again. And mm-hmm. so it does almost feel as though once Picard ends the door is open again for the lit verse to kind of take over, uh, because yeah. I don't think we're going to be seeing a ton of those characters again. And, uh, so I, you know, where that show ends up, uh, I think, you know, even the, the novel we're going to talk about today, second self shows that there is a lot of room and a lot of story to be told between, you know, the last time we saw the 24th century and when Picard starts and and what's happening to all these other characters, you know, that mm-hmm. we knew from Beast Space Nine, Voyager, I mean, the list is kind of really endless uh, of of what you could do story-wise. And so uh, a lot of doors open here, I think, and, and this comic series, I think, is one of those doors being opened. Absolutely. And I would say, too, just for myself, I do hope that they will go that route again, Um i you know i comics are great but i'm much more a fan personally of the novels uh and so i would love for them to use this as a as a just a free range open door (laughs) yes
1: well i mean especially with and i totally agree i i i i much prefer the longer the longer stories we can get in the novels um a lot more than the comics. And there's so many great authors out there from some of our legacy Star Trek authors and some of the newer ones that have come in, in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think there's, there's plenty of room to tell stories that aren't going to step on the toes of any current or potentially even future shows. And I know that like Dayton described it in his blog post when announcing his new book you know, about supply chain issues with paper and everything. And, you know, give us eBooks. Maybe they, that, I know that those don't generally sell as well as paper books, but maybe give us some novellas. Like they've done that in the past. Mm-hmm. Give yep. newer authors, a, a a platform. I, I think that'd be a lot of fun. And there's so many more stories that could be told.
0: Yes. A hundred percent. Well, and that I think is a great way to lead us into, uh, our first comic review, stargazer number two, and you know we had a ton to say about Star Gazer number one about how we felt like it fit and everything. And you know there are um, I'll just reference uh, right away. There's still a couple of issues there. You know Picard talks about needing to scratch an itch, uh, I guess to get back into space, which I still feel like doesn't feel like him after season two. Uh, but you know otherwise, you know we know that Seven is going to end up in Starfleet. Because we've seen the trailer uh, of her on the Titan A. Uh, and so uh, I I got to ask you, how did you end up liking this issue? Did you feel like it felt better kind of knowing some of those things and what's coming? So now we can just kind of focus on, okay, this is showing us then how we get there.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think I think when we'd read the first one, we'd seen maybe just the character reveals for season three. And so I think Mm -hmm. we could kind of see seven in a Starfleet uniform, but it wasn't real clear. And and now we know, and I do think that that has helped put a little perspective for me in this story. Cause I could kind of step back and say, okay, she, after the last season, she went back to the Fenris Rangers. Cause she's still maybe struggling with her place in the universe. And I, and wanting to help, help people outside of the confines of starfleet or the federation and i think if i'm not mistaken i think there's like one more issue left of this there might be two but i'm really interested to see especially because at the end of this issue that they haven't shown her path yet back into starfleet and so i'm really curious to Mm -hmm. see how we get from here to there yeah it's probably a long road but
0: I, I think it probably is. Um, uh, <laughs> I think that there are four issues in this, if I remember correctly. And so I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, you know, I do think that actually the situation that's on this planet, Genjor 6, that we see where, you know, that previously when Picard had been there before, um, that Romulan commander had a daughter – with a Reman slave there, and basically abandons that daughter uh, and his, you know, concubine uh, to that planet, and then they basically bombard that planet, and it pushes everybody uh, that were inhabitants of that planet, the actual indigenous inhabitants of that planet, underground because they could no longer live uh, on the surface, and then the rest of the Remans there just kind of eking out a living, and. The Remans have, that are there, the Marauders, they call them, that have been waiting all of this time to basically find a way underground so that they can, we find out, turn the indigenous population into slaves. Um, and so this is kind of where you know we leave the issue with Picard being in this position, I think, where he's going to show Seven in the end. That the Starfleet way actually can do things that the Fenris Rangers can't because mm-hmm. that was her whole purpose of being back with the Fenris Rangers is because they do things that Starfleet can't uh, and I think Picard is going to show her with his Picard magic we'll call it that yeah you know um, Starfleet you might think that it's hampered because of the you know the idea of the rules and regulations but yeah we we can we can we can pull magic out of our hats all the time,
1: and like we'll find out uh in the book for this week as well. I mean Picard can be very persuasive, you know he mm-hmm. pers- he can be persuasive with Raff- with Rafi, I imagine he can be just as persuasive with seven, yes um and speaking yep. of rafi i'm I'm a little surprised we still haven't really gotten uh, i think in one brief moment in the first issue, we might've gotten a mention of Rafi, but seven and Rafi got very close at the end of season two. They were still like, they were probably even closer. <laughs> and so, um, again, kind of like looking forward to hopefully getting a little bit more backstory since they're both going to appear in season three mm-hmm. on yep. the status of their relationship. I mean, they don't, they don't show that for nothing. Um, the thing I also really like about this comic is kind of some focus and a little bit more intrigue with the Romulans and the Remans. I think ever since Star Trek Nemesis, we've been getting a lot of Remans, but it kind of makes sense in this time period that we would be seeing them since the Romulans are refugees, the Remans right. most assuredly are as well. Um, you know, the a lot of the Picard Uh, well the first novel and other comics have focused on the romulans and so i like seeing some more continuation with finding more you know about what the romulan Mm -hmm. what what's left of the romulan empire is up to in the current days are they still villains in this case clearly at least the remans on this planet are somewhat villainous so um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah looking forward to that looking and you know, who knows if we'll see Romulans or Remans in season three, but uh, mm-hmm. we'll see. We get them in this story, though.
0: Well, and that's another thing that happens, too, is that, you know, the 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 Romulan commander who abandoned his daughter on this planet back in the day is the one who shows up and says, basically, I'm here to claim my planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have this... The, all of these different factions um all vying for the same thing at the same planet and uh so i, I think in in all honesty we really do uh have um a, an interesting story here and like you said I, I think i'm i'm really fascinated to see the way in which this does play out uh, the way in which this does hopefully all connect uh you know It's interesting because even in light of the trailer for Picard season three, it does again feel almost like a season that's not taking into account its previous season. So you know this this comic can either help with that or it can kind of continue that trend. So I'm hoping that it helps, Um, and I'm actually hoping that that season really connects more with the second season because. You know they wrote season two and three in conjunction with one another, so uh, i I hope that that really pays off so uh but for me, yeah, I thought stargazer uh two was uh you know an improvement on Stargazer One, and it does actually have my interest now um and i'm'm I'm, I want to see how this plays out and and part of that is because you know I want that set up for the third season of Picard since this is supposedly the final journey of this crew now.
1: Yeah. And really, yeah, I totally agree. This is much improved over the first one. And honestly, regardless of how this ultimately ends up tying to season three, I, I'm excited to see where this particular story is going. The it, mm-hmm. it ends on quite the cliffhanger with the Romulan showing up and, you know, this massive Romulan ship facing off against the Stargazer. So it's mm-hmm. um, I think I, I hope the next one's just as exciting. Yeah.
0: Well, we got uh, the first issue of Lower Decks, number one. And what did you end up thinking of this? Because, you know, to me, the best thing I can say about this comic is that it is legitimately Lower Decks. I mean, it just feels like... I mean, you know, we talked about the idea of, like, Lower Decks books, um, I think, with Dayton uh, when the last time he was on, and we joked about that. But I think comics is actually the perfect place for it. It feels so much more natural there. And, I mean, seriously, this just feels like a Lower Decks episode to me, with all the insanity that happens.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. It was, I mean, right down to the... I was going to say animation, but the, the artwork, I mean, it's, it's like it's lifted straight out of an episode. and mm-hmm. yeah. um, You know, the, the different stories that are going on in here are just crazy. There's little uh, kind of footnotes at the bun at the bottom of a bunch of the pages that, um, and so- sometimes we're a little we're trying a little too hard to be funny, but other times we're just genu- genuinely what you would expect from lower decks. And, uh, I don't know why they wouldn't make this into an episode except for the right. fact that it's now a comic. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, we get some Dixon Hill, we get some Sherlock Holmes, we get to see some different uh enterprise crews. Uh you know, the the typical Star Trek parody, I guess. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's it's really great. Yeah. No,
0: I it's it's one of those things where, you know, this was a lot of fun to read and i was actually like you said i was kind of surprised i'm like oh, this isn't just an episode of lore decks you know it feels as though uh you know we're almost wasting a good idea on a comic instead of just putting it on the show but you know i think that's real high praise though mm-hmm. for the fact that we feel that way and so i i don't it's one of those things where it it is something to which i, I feel like we could go into all the details but I feel like it's just more fun to tell people you should go and read it because yeah. if you like Lower Decks, this is Lower Decks. You, that's exactly what you're getting. So no need for us to ruin that for you. Yeah.
1: And it's I, – I it felt – it looked like it was a few pages longer than the typical comic, but it, mm-hmm. it really yeah. didn't feel like it. It was – it has a fast pace just like the show. Um, it kind of just got to the end and I was like – I'm ready for issue two now. Let's get to it.
0: exactly. Exactly. Well, the the next comic that we have to talk about is uh, Mirror War Troy. And I think that of the one shots that we've got, this is the best.
1: I would agree with that. (laughs) I mean, it it ties in more with with the rest of them than any of the other ones have. 100%.
0: 100%. I mean, it's, I, I think that's the thing that really stuck out to me was that this tells the backstory of how Troy joined Picard in the first place, how they forged their partnership. And that then feeds into where we were with Riker being named the new emperor. And her being behind that. And so it was I, to me, I was like, OK, why haven't all the one shots felt like this to which they really feel like they're building the immediate story that's happening? I was very surprised to find that it was the Troy issue that did the most for me in the storyline.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was the first one of this whole batch that I read just because I was, I I don't, I don't like to say this, but I kind of wanted to get it out of the way. Like I wanted to read it and be like, all right, let's get onto some of the other ones. But I was pleasantly surprised by this for everything that you, you just said. Like it, it's placed well in the timeline, you know, um, you know where everything is within the mirror universe, um, as far as the time jumps go. And it really did, I feel like enhance my understanding of her character in these mirror war uh, issues. And, you know, I, I wasn't really looking forward to it because, you know, we had the data one that had no bearing on, or it felt like it had no bearing on the other issues. The Cisco one, we had a Geordi, you know, the, these different issues, like this was the one that, I couldn't agree with you more. I I wish all of them had been like this. And I think that would have just further enhanced uh, the enjoyment and the actual storytelling happening in the main series. No, I
0: a hundred percent agree with you. And I just hope that this continues. Um, You know, I feel like we've gotten to this place where the Mirror war has is started this trajectory of looking up. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, this has been a part of that. So I, I'm really excited to see that. And I just want that to continue yes Well, last but not least we have a very big comic. Uh, it was a celebration of Star Trek comics with Star Trek 400 uh, as their 400th if- issue and and it leads us into something that we're gonna see later on. Um, this comic specifically uh, the last part of it will lead us into Star Trek 1. Which is going to weave this massive, epic, unprecedented adventure story, as they call it. Where they're basically pulling Star Trek The Avengers uh, throughout the multiverse. Uh, And it's going to revolve around Benjamin Sisko, who's back from the wormhole. And his godhood is failing with every minute because there's somebody out to kill the gods. Which, very interesting Star Trek story in the first place. And so he gathers this ragtag group uh, and they go out on the USS Theseus to stop this from happening. Uh, but this issue, of Star Trek 400, had a bunch of different stories in it. And so uh, what did you end up thinking of this comic? And, and, you know, were there any of the stories that really stood out to you that you really liked? And were there any that just kind of like you were like, OK. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like it was a mixed bag. Um, I would say more positive than negative uh, overall. Um, I'd say my my two favorites were probably uh, the very first one, which is called Captain's Log, and it's um, at, at first as I started to read it, it felt kind of lazy because they were taking a bunch of scenes from. Throughout Star Trek, the original series and the movies um, and the whole thing. I mean, it's called Captain's Log and it was formatted as such. And by the time you get to the end of the, the uh, story, the whole time you kind of believe that it's Kirk's log entry but it turns out to be Sulu's log entry and it's kind of almost like an homage log entry to Kirk and his time and his his learning from that captain and the time with his crew and by the time i got to the end of it i really appreciated it just how um well kind of the turn when we when it's revealed it's actually Captain Sulu's log entry um kind of from the end of Star Trek 6 um, actually I think it's from even after that. Cause I think he said it's his final mission. It's Sulu's final mission essentially. But I, I just thought it was a really kind of touching kind of tribute story to that mm-hmm. crew. Um, and, and the other one I really liked was a matter of choice, which was actually written by Will Wheaton and it's adult Wesley, the traveler, as we saw him at the end of season two of Picard and it actually ends the, the story ends with that scene where he's going to meet Corey and, um, just kind of a really interesting, um, kind of idea of, of what Wesley's life was like when he became a traveler told by Will Wheaton himself. So I thought that was a, a really neat choice to be able to have him tell that story himself since he is that character.
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, agree with you on all the standouts, I think, um, and uh, obviously, you know, you have uh, the one at the end with Mitchell, which leads into uh, Star Trek one. And of course, you know, he's one of the godlike characters who and it, he is the godlike character who we see first die. Uh, mm-hmm. So that sets up that storyline, which I think is great uh, and very intriguing. And so. And. Uh, i you know i can't really add anything to what you said there uh, you know i was um I, I think the one that i was just kind of most confused on and it was the soldier on uh with o'brien where he was on the rutledge during the cardassian wars and mm-hmm. i thought that was such a great opportunity to be able to fill in that time period but i i it felt squandered to me uh it, it just <sighs> The whole idea of, you know, them being soldiers at this time period and not really being what they were wanting to be and then tying that in with, like, Garrick somehow and Tane and them. Like, it all just didn't seem to fit as well as they wanted it to. And it almost just felt like a story that needed more time to be uh really fleshed out and of course you can't get that when you know you're having these little vignettes. Uh and so that was the one where I felt like it had a lot of potential but it kind of it just didn't live up to the potential that it had.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that's a story I'd like to read in a novel actually or yep. or even yep. a, a novella, just something that has more time um the artwork for that one too was interesting. It's I've I've always struggled because I'm not a, I, I've never been a huge comic reader, and I remember reading some of the older um, Deep Space Nine ones. Like I think it was called N Vector. It had a really interesting art style that um, you know you could tell who the characters were, but it was very um, I want to say abstract or something and at any rate the, the the artwork from this one was just a lot different from uh the art that we've been used to and i think that's good in some ways to give different styles their time but mixed with the story that was just a little bit lacking mm-hmm. or kind of left me wanting more i felt like as as a package yeah it it didn't work for me as well as some of the other ones yeah no i 100 percent agree with you
0: um so, I, but I mean, it's interesting, you know, anytime you do a comic like this, um, I think it's it's really a hard thing to do because you don't really, I mean, you even have less time, even though the comic has so many pages, you just have less time to be able to tell any really substantial stories and, and some work better than others. And, uh, you know, I think um, I'm just now excited to see kind of where this goes with. This multiverse crossing story that we're going to get with uh, Star Trek 1. And, you know, I I think. What's crazy is that we had so much to talk about here in the news, but that doesn't mean this episode is done. We are going to be heading into Second Self by Una McCormick, and we wanted to be able to have Una on, but the way Casey and I's schedules are and Una's schedule is at the moment, we were just not able to make that work, uh, and we figured we didn't want to make people wait uh, for us to, to cover the book. And so... Casey, I, I don't know. Maybe we should just go discover our second selves. Let's do it. Well, Casey, it is always exciting to have a new novel to be able to talk about. And, uh, of course, uh, this week, as we mentioned, we're diving into Una McCormick's Second Self, which is another Picard novel. And uh, this one takes place between seasons one and two. So give us a little bit more background specifically on the fact that, of course, you know, in the beginning of that season, we find out that Picard has become, you know, chancellor of Starfleet Academy. Uh, Elnor has been in the Academy and Rafi is actually teaching at the Academy as well uh, as a professor. And so uh, a lot um, has happened there. And so this book kind of gives us the opportunity to to dive into a little bit of that. Um, But one of the most interesting things that I found just about the structure of the book was that there is this chiastic structure. And um, if people aren't familiar with that, it's a a structure in which you have A, B, C, B, A. So you have uh, these sections, and they all kind of work in, uh, and then they work back out. Uh, And so I I was really interested uh, to see just... How you thought that structure ended up working for the book and if you
1: felt like it it
0: did help tell the story that Una was going for.
1: Yeah, I would say I appreciated it more by the end of the book than mm. um, when I was getting started. Because once you get into that second section, because the first section is right after the end of season one of Picard. Yeah, The second section is right after, or kind of at the end of the Dominion War, and then uh, the middle section is, um, I've just lost, I can't remember if it's during the occupation or just kind of towards the end of that. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's during, uh, it's the,
0: during occupation. the occupation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think as I was going through it, once I got to that kind of middle section, I was at that point kind of wishing it was maybe a little bit more interspersed. Uh, but by the time that we get some reveals, kind of, uh, you know, part of the way through the book, uh, especially in that middle section, and then as you come back out through the B and the A section again, it ties out so well. And I'm actually glad <laughs> glad that it was in the order that it was mm-hmm. in, because I think if it had been mixed up, you know, we we have a lot of books with time jumps all over the place, you know, every yeah. couple chapters we're moving backward or forward. Um this one kept each part of the stories very succinct, and um, the the biggest difficulty I had is when I got back to that A section at the very end, I kind of forgot where we had left off. Um, right, but it really doesn't take much time to get back into it. So I, I, like I said, I, I was a little unsure at first, but by the end, I was totally sold on this on this structure for sure.
0: Yeah, I think you made some really good points and I felt the same way as I was reading through the book, you know, because we kept jumping between time periods in the sense that, you know, we start here and then, you know, we go backwards in time and then we go further backwards in time, uh and then we kind of move forward in time again and then back to the present. And it almost felt like uh, in Starship Troopers, when they're like, "Would you like to know more?" And so each point where the time jumps backwards, it 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 it's almost as if we hit the button. Would you like to know more about the story, the the background of the story, and then we do it again, and then we move, you know, back to that previous time period, and then back to the present. And, and like you said, by the end of the book, it really does come together and it makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I would say that by the end of the book, you're just appreciating those other sections even more because they make more sense. Um, and you're, you're, you know, thinking back and you're kind of like piecing things back together and, you know, figuring out how it all works. And, um, it is a little timey-wimey. It's kind of a, you know, almost a, a Doctor Who-ish type thing because of where we actually end up with uh, how the story uh, connects and why it all connects, um, which I did not see coming, uh, you know. So I no. think that was a, a nice thing as well. And in all, I was I was actually just really impressed by how each section all plays to get together. And and again, when we get to the end, it does feel like it's been worth the journey that Una's taking us on.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's it's really worth a really quick reread again. I feel like just knowing now how the story ends and then, I you know, I kind of want to go back and see maybe what I had missed because I wasn't paying as much attention because I didn't think something was as important as maybe it was later. And I think... um yeah I just it was a a pretty masterful way of telling the story that really wove everything together, and I thought she did a really great job with it yeah
0: no i I agree with you uh and i it was just it was one of those things too where it's unexpected and many times i think uh creative storytelling like this leads you to be more interested than maybe more of a straightforward type of story and Part of that is just because you're drawn in. You're like, okay, what what are we doing here? You know, like, why are we, you know why are we going back here? And who are these characters, and why do they matter? And then you know, when you start to figure those things out, your those light bulbs begin to go off, and it just makes for an exciting reading experience, and it keeps you wanting to turn the page. So I think all in all, it it ends up working really really well. And uh, I ended up really enjoying the fact that the story was told like that, which you know, one of the 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 big things that this story uh, and I felt like it really did was that you know every character is living with the past, uh, and they're having to examine their past. You know, uh, Picard quotes the famous line, you know, an unexamined life isn't worth living. Um, and that examination allows them to either see their their life in a new light or in the harsh light of reality. And both are needed, right? Sometimes both at the same time. Um, and I really, really liked this because, you know, one of the things that Picard, I think, especially when we get to the second season, it's all about exploring these characters and who they are and why they are the way they are, and so this idea of allowing specifically a character like Rafi to have this experience of Having to go back and explore a part of her life that she would rather not and then see how because of time she can see that in a new light
1: um was really really interesting yeah raffy was one of the characters that i think was a good one to see in this book uh, we've had other books you know with picard and Raffi, but picard was more that main character of that first picard novel and then you know we've had um we've had the titan we've had Rios, I think, you know, it's about time for Rafi's time to shine and learning more about her past that we can't really get from the show has been really good. And I think this is a really good way of doing it. Um, and then connecting her past with, I mean, even bringing in the Cardassians and the Majorans and the Romulans and, and kind of this horrible thing from her past or what, you know, the things that she witnessed on this planet. Um, you know i I think it just f- added a lot of depth to her character that I just didn't think we've had a chance to really explore on the series because you know the show's focused on Picard, but there's still so many other characters, and she's gonna be in season three coming up, but we're probably not gonna get as much time with her given that the rest of the right. next generation cast is back so I think being able to learn about her past while she's kind of reflecting on her past as as she thinks about her future I think it was just a really nice way to do it rather than just telling some story that happened in her past um, really just allowing her character to grow from this from these stories really the, the present and the past
0: mm-hmm. yeah I mean part of this is that you know A lot of us, I think, in life have had things that have happened to us in the past or that we've been responsible for or, um, you know, choices that we've made or situations we've been in. And, you know, there is a thing to which as we look and we examine what happened— there is kind of almost this like harsh reality that needs to be this this light of harsh reality that needs to be sh- shown on those situations so that we can actually see them for what they are but then as we view them through the lens of where we are at the moment we see how our past makes us who we are now you know that it can inform us to make better choices in the future that it can you know even those really Awful things that we went through, as we look through the lens of now to then, can actually be seen as like I'm. It was a terrible thing that I went through, but I'm actually glad I went through it because it brought out this, you know, um, it it led to this metamorphosis in me. And if that had never happened, I wouldn't, you know, be this person. And you know, I I think that's a really important thing. Um, and it's obviously you know not just it's not just Rafi who's dealing with this you know uh, and, and to a lesser extent, Elnor's dealing with this uh and Picard himself is even dealing with this kind of in the book. he talks about this idea of like you know wrestling with these ideas himself, you know now that he's getting much older. And realizing, you know, there's a lot less years, even with this new body, there's still a lot less years in front of him than there are behind him. And, which I think is a great place, and it creates a great catapult for both of, all of these characters, you know, to go into the second season and really deal with this, you know, like, on a large scale level, because, you know, as we know from season two, rafi and picard are kind of really put through the ringer as in who they are what's happened to them in the past things they're responsible for things they're not responsible for uh and coming out the other side as different people which you know is one of the best parts of storytelling and i think this book really actually helps accentuate that which is great
1: and even to the the most minor extent, we get some of this with Laris as well, because we find out at the yes. beginning of the book, yep. and then at the very end of the book, that she's, I mean, we knew that she's had horrible experiences in her life. We saw in uh, the Picard Countdown comic, how he kind of rescued her and Jabon, uh, you know, their former Tal Shiar, like, we know that they've got some things in their past. And at the beginning of this book, they address that, Shaban has just recently passed away, and we don't really go into that but um as as the story's you know unfolding at the very opening of the book uh Laris is not only dealing with the loss of shaban um but the the kind of catalyst of uh this this um this person they're chasing we'll say for now <laughs> um you know, is kind of coming back to haunt her, and even by the end of the Mm -hmm. book, she doesn't have the closure that she wants from it. Um, You know, she's in a really tough place in her life, and I kind of almost want to explore her character Mm -hmm. a little bit more, but she's such a minor character that we can only go so far, but I I just love that she was wrapped up into this as well, that every character I feel like that we've seen in this book had something in their past that they were examining and trying to figure out how it fits with mm-hmm. now and where i'm going in the future and i thought um just seeing that theme run through the entire book was really great And it really kind of you know the title of the book is second self and i mean that theme itself really ran through the book as far as we see these people in the past we see them now they're different people you know mm-hmm. but The current one is just informed by their experiences that they're once again uh, kind of looking back into as they consider their future.
0: Yeah, I love that you brought up Laris because we learn in the end that she was actually the catalyst for this entire story in many ways. She's the one who who has Picard reach out to Rafi in the first place, um, which Rafi never knows until the end of the book. Um, which I, I think is really, really interesting, but it also brings them closer together as is, is people, which I'm with you. I mean, you know, we're due for a Laris book, I feel like, um, especially depending on where season three of Picard goes. So, you know, I, I, again, this, this this whole idea was, was really um, fascinating, and I think it was so close to the human experience, which is we all have to go through this as we get older, especially because... These things happen in our lives and we do have to examine them. And, and really, um, it's the examination that, that keeps us from being people who just, uh, you know, get into like victimhood mentality or bitterness or any of those type of things. Because it's the people who are willing to examine that you can actually work through these things. And so I really like that. And then kind of with this, the the idea of history itself, and we have a character talk about how, you know, history is a never-ending cycle of violence and hate. And it falls to us to decide whether or not to be part of it or to prevent it. And in the end, they say that sacrifice is the way that these cycles of history are broken. And, you know, it it was really interesting because, you know, for Star Trek... It's this kind of humanist mentality where, uh, you know, things are supposedly getting better, you know, where as we evolve, we get better and better. But, I mean, even when we look at Star Trek itself, you know, like, the Q are, like, some of the most evolved people in the galaxy, and yet they're just as petty, just as, like, bored, you know, just as kind of, like violence-inducing, hate-filled people that we can see, right? And so I really loved this idea because, in the end, sacrifice is the idea of sacrificial love, right? You're willing to lay your life down for others. You're willing to lay yourself down for, for others, you know? And that, yeah, that's the only way you can break these cycles of history is by being sacrificial towards one another, you know. Uh otherwise, um you do just kind of end in this never-ending cycle of kind of violence or hate or bigotry or, you know, all these things that we see. And um I think that's I was just really blown away, but I I I loved that section of the book. And um you know, it's it's something that's played out here Because we actually see Rafi being the character, even being willing to do this, right? You know, she's the Starfleet officer who's in this position where, you know, is it the wisest move for her to continue to try and save these Cardassians who may or may not even really deserve it? No, but is it the right thing to do? Um, is it is it the more sacrificial thing to do? Yes. So I just I loved how that was really reinforced by the story of this book, and I just thought it was really well done. So
1: I totally agree with that. I mean, we we even got to see that play out, and Rafi got to see that play out with. Avarak, who was mm-hmm. the vulcan yes I mean, he was an ensign in starfleet that was with her on this planet Ordive when she went there the first time and he literally sacrificed himself uh to save um to save one of the cardassians from the romulans as the romulans were kind of uh, essentially trying to take over this planet and it, it was I don't know. It, it was actually kind of a hard scene to to read just because of that, I mean, the the split second, like, you know, you got to think he's a Vulcan. So he's thinking logically, like, we can't let this Cardassian die. We can't let the violence continue. But at the same time, it happens, it kind of happens so fast that, um, which, you know, these types of sacrifices usually do, or at least that's what it feels like in the moment. And for Rafi to get to literally witnessed that sacrifice happening um, and that it's somebody that she cares about. I think that's something that she ended up carrying with her into the future. I mean, she, she kind of contemplates him as, as she's going back to this planet, but you know, I, I think watching that happen has had really put things into perspective for her as well. And maybe even I think helping her realize that she, you know, could probably do that too. The fact that she's going and she's kind of putting her life on the line, you know, to search for this renegade and to help try to maybe save some Romulans, you know, as they're looking for a place to live now that their star is gone. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I completely agree with you that that, that part of the story is really, really good. And um you know, I think it's something again, just really well built on her character.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it's it is really interesting because you know, just Raffi as a character is is a little bit fascinating to me, um, in the sense that you know, uh, I think of of all the characters in um, Picard, I guess, other than Doctor Girardi, you know, she's the one who just feels the most modern you know uh, just the way she acts the way she talks and all those type of things and and I think you know at the same time she's the type of character who is closer to us in in a lot of the struggles that she has and so to tell the story through her with you know this idea of sac- sacrifice and you know how to change these historical cycles uh was was really beautiful Um, And and part of that, you know, and something just about obviously most new Trek other than Strange New Worlds is very gritty. Um, And I think this story itself just has a grittiness to it. And in many ways, especially with the flashbacks and everything, it reminded me of like Apocalypse Now in some places. The tone fit very well with the fact that we had a lot of Uh, Deep Space Nine references, you know, so this kind of reminded me of the siege of AR-558. You know, some of this also reminded me of the the new Andor series that we've gotten in Star Wars where, you know, just really grounded, gritty, real, and yet at the same time, like Deep Space Nine, it's not just grittiness for grittiness' sake. I really felt like the storytelling um was on purpose because again, this fit so well within the tone of what we got with the occupation from Bajor uh with the Dominion war uh the repercussions of that uh on the people that are going through it um both of those places since that's where we are in those historical sections. I just, it really, really works. And I think Una, obviously with so much experience writing Deep Space Nine stories, can really pick that up and make it feel like it fits within the world of Star Trek.
1: I like what you said about, you know, being gritty, but not just for gritty's sake. You know, this this really does feel more grounded. Um. You know, there were parts of Picard, like, the, especially the first season of Picard, that sometimes felt gritty for grittiness' sake. But I feel like, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, Uno was, like, the perfect person to write this novel um, that needed to be grounded, that needed to look at kind of some of the dark side of humanity of you, you know, using the broad term humanity for like the Cardassians and Romulans and Bajorans and everything that's happened. And I, I think that did a, did so well with um, bringing kind of a Star Trek message into it as well. It's not just a war story. Mm-hmm. It's not just, uh, you know, battles and there's a lot of f words in this book, yeah. but yeah. you know, f- for the most for the most part, there there was some some pretty well placed ones. But um, at the same time, it it got across the characters' feelings. It wasn't yeah. just laced with profanity. I, I think on my iPad, I was able to count there was like eighteen <laughs> f words or some derivation. So. Really, it's not that that many, but um, it was enough to get the point across. And they were in kind of high impact, high emotion scenes, and I, I feel like it just made it feel more real. And you know, to me as a reader, as a viewer of Star Trek, I don't, I don't really mind the profanity as long as they don't go overboard like they have in, say, Discovery. <laughs> um, but yeah, the just the feel of this book fits so well in the Picard universe and in the Deep Space Nine universe. I, I think this would have been a hard story to tell back in the TNG days or, you know, on something like Voyager. I just think that this is the right story. It was to- like the 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 tone of it and everything was just dark enough, but with just enough light to be able to really get something out of it
0: yeah i i i am gonna comment real quickly um I don't like when aliens use our profanity. It doesn't make sense to me um so you know when Cardassians or or Romulans or whatever are using the f word it just doesn't feel real um because it, it it's like they they would have their own words for that you know yes. um and they wouldn't necessarily be the same even same type of words that we would consider curse words in our because they're a completely different culture right uh and right. so i i don't i don't like that um i I don't necessarily mind i i think it's okay you know for there to be that in you know star trek um but i uh, yeah and and especially for a character like Rafi um you know that's just kind of who she is so i don't i don't really feel like that's everyone in Starfleet or even in in this you know, time period, but there are certain people who kind of revert to those type of, you know, verbal usages. Um, <laughs> colorful yeah, metaphors. Yeah, colorful metaphors, exactly. Um, so, yeah. Um, but no, I, I think the rest of what you said is just like, uh, yeah, 100%. And, and I think, you know, too, this is also where in that kind of grittiness and realness, you know, this is where Elnor... We're seeing the progression of him as a character where he's having to learn with the complexity of life, which, you know, he grew up and it's a very black and white world. You only tell the truth. Right. And figuring out the shades of gray uh, and not the TNG clip show, but, you know, (laughs) the the actual just the shades of life, um, which are very hard to deal with. Right. Like life is is not easy to understand. Um, it's not one side or the other, always. There are some times when that's the case, but there are also other times when it's not. And, you know, that is part of that, I think, almost uh, Deep Space Nine influence on, you know, Star Trek and especially the Picard series, I think. You know, I, I don't think Picard uh, as a series would exist without the fact that Deep Space Nine pushed some of those boundaries in the first place. And Elnor is learning that, right, in this in, in this book. Uh, which is obviously what helped set him up for season two of Picard, and I thought that was really well done in, in that. So,
1: yeah, Elnor is one of those characters that seems like he was created as, you know, kind of the Spock or the Data or the the character that's just trying to learn about humanity and. It seemed a little dangerous for them to. It felt like they could have written him into a corner by, you know, with this absolute candor thing. But I feel like, um, especially as season two went on, we only got him a little bit in season two. But Una did a really good job in this book with his voice. Like, I can hear Elnor in how he talks, uh, the mistakes he makes by just thinking of absolute candor as more of a just speak what's on your mind. You know, he sees withholding information as lying and um it it was interesting watching him grow he's he's a character that i i don't want to say i don't like him but he's he's not one of my favorite characters and i think it's just because we haven't really gotten much from him of either season of picard Um, but i think he was used to really good effect in in this story because he's kind of that kind of Diamond, that's... Diamond is a rough, but he's not rough. It's everything around him that's rough. And um, trying to, you know, just like you said, trying to figure out this complexity of life, like about, you know, how do you tell somebody that sometimes you have to lie, you know, to to spare somebody's feelings or to, uh, you know, not play your hand, you know. um, He's... He's learning that, and you know, unfortunately, since I don't think he's going to be in season three of Picard, we're not going to really get to explore it much right. further. So, right. part of part of me feels like some of this development was a little bit for nothing. But I am glad that he was here in this story with Rafi because mm-hmm. he he really was kind of a, a little bit of a um, a light within the grittiness.
0: Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I. Couldn't agree with you more on that. I think you're absolutely right. And I do feel like that, um, you know, he he is not my favorite character either. I, and I think part of that is that he's a representation of season one trying to do way too many things and not necessarily doing anything very well. Um, just my opinion of that first season. Uh, but then I think they used him to much better effect in season two. And here I I felt like at least his character growth in this book fit with where we were going for season two, which, you know, this is, this is meant to be that, that, you know, a bridge. So I think they did that well. So we've been dancing around this the the whole time. (laughs) uh, And uh, it's been a fun dance, but I think it's finally time to talk about plain Simple Garrick, and the fact that he is actually a Cardassian that we're after. Um, And um, he's the Cardassian who is responsible for John's death. Uh, He is the Cardassian who um, had been at Ordev and had been responsible uh, for some of the atrocities that happened there, a lot of them. When his time with the Obsidian Order. And so, first, just uh, let's start there because there's a bunch to talk about with his character. But how did you feel when you realized that that's who we were talking about?
1: Well, kind of in hindsight, felt a little ridiculous that I didn't figure that out right away, given that Una McCormick was the author of this yeah. book and she's known for her love of Garrick. Um, uh, I think I was I was very nervous cuz Garrick is hands down my favorite character from Deep Space 9 just he, the mystery around Garrick is he a good guy is he a bad guy what was he up to and I think um you know once once they've once they revealed that it was Garrick I thought oh no they're going to they're either going to turn him all the way bad, and we're going to find out he is just this evil person all along, or you know something's going to happen, and he's going to die this horrible death, and or you mm-hmm. know get put in a prison somewhere, and we're just not going to get anything good. And I, I mean, I should have known better with Una writing the book, but I, I have to say my my first reaction was I was very nervous right. about what they were going to do to this character.
0: No, I mean, I felt the same way I actually texted you. And and, uh, I think we were both feeling the exact same way. And yet, knowing Una, I mean, I trusted the fact that she wasn't going to do anything with the character um, that I probably wouldn't like. Because, you know, it's kind of like Dave Filoni and Ahsoka. I don't know if anybody loves Garrick more than Una, other than maybe Andy Robinson. So, uh, and therefore what she does with this character I thought was really interesting because, you know, it, obviously one of the places that we went in the old lit verse is that, you know, Garrick becomes, um, the, uh, ambassador to the Federation and he finally becomes Castellan of, you know, Cardassia, um but in some ways i feel like where she took garrick in this book really came down to that idea of what she was digging at with that conversation of sacrifice um and you know what what you're willing to do because the storyline ends up being that garrick becomes the person that ends up saving everything because we get a new orb, and it's the orb of restitution. And there's this kind of almost like circular thing where, you know, uh, he's there because the orb's in a back, because the orb's in him back, he's there, you know, and it's timey wimey. it's it's profit stuff. <laughs> um, but he turns out to be the uh the Bajoran Vedic at the temple there. Uh, and he's the one who saved the orb in the first place because of all this timey whiminess. And so, and he's going to die on that planet. And so he go basically goes back in time to save, ev- save these Bajorans from himself. Um, being able to make restitution for his choices, and it's it's this obviously very beautiful thing, and it, it, it's this, you know, real, uh, you know, as Deep Space Nine usually is, you know, a very spiritual type of story. Um, the idea of redemption, finding redemption, uh, in this way, and it's just, uh, you know, to have this character end up in that place, and and basically, I think the where we end up with Garrick is yes, he's dead, but I think in many ways, Garrick is able to find peace in a way that even in the old lit verse, he was never able to, because he truly does sacrifice himself for others. And and there's no way out of it. Um, and, and I like that a lot for this character. Um, I think it makes him an even stronger character in the end. Um because of the choice he makes. It makes an even more heroic character uh in the end. Um, which is pretty awesome. So
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. He is He is so much yeah, more the hero now than he ever was. He's also so much more the villain now than he ever was mm-hmm. either because we had yeah. so much kind of double talk him during Deep Space Nine because he could never give a straight answer and we could never totally learn about his past. One thing we did know about him is he wanted so much to um, be successful in the eyes of his father, yep. who was the head of the Obsidian Order. And we see some of that throughout this book, that he's just doing everything he can to get some praise for what he's doing or to, to, to prove himself. And part of that happens in this, in the scenes during the occupation where, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I actually thought like kind of in in hindsight, once we had the reveal that he was the old Vedic in that town, you know, thinking that as he wasn't even Garrick, I can't remember his name. It was mass Garrett or something like that. It was, um, he was kind of the persona when he was in charge of uh, on this planet. And he actually went to the Bajoran temple, met with the Vedic Mm -hmm. and then ordered it burned down and all of the people killed. But then he was kind of freaking out because he couldn't find the Vedic. He wanted to find the Vedic. And then he, but we also saw a glimpse of future Garrick there when the, Child comes up to him and he tells the child to run away, get away. Like mm-hmm. he, he basically saved the kids. Yeah. Um, young Garrick did, and so seeing him doing these evil things, but then knowing that the older version of Garrick was there to help, try to you know make peace, you know, like save some people, him yep. find restitution. I love the line, um, when he, bef- before he has the orb experience and goes back to that time, um, he tells the the Bajorans in the town, like, I'm afraid that given the chance to do this all over again, I would do exactly the same thing mm-hmm. over again. Yep. And the Bajoran tells him, I'm sure you would, or at least that younger version of yep. you would, but I don't think you will now. Right. And, I think that that spoke volumes to who Garrick has yep. been through his life. He's he's led quite a variety of lives, really, as we find out. He has taken on many identities, and the older, wizened Garrick that we've come to know, and even the same similar one to, to the one that we saw at the end of Deep Space Nine, um... Is the one that I really find to be my favorite. The one who is a hero, the one yeah. who does things for Cardassia, but also wants to do the right thing. So I think mm-hmm. that's where I feel like we've really done right by Garrick, or what yeah. Una's done right by Garrick with this book. Well,
0: this also connects with that story of examining your life. And mm-hmm. I think what we see here especially with that conversation you mentioned with the Bajorans before he goes back, Garrick has been able to see his life in the harsh light of reality, but he can also see it in a new light by making this choice, that all of these things have led him to being the person who will actually make this choice instead of the other choice. And I think... You know, again, that's something that's so beautiful. I mean, it kind of goes back to, uh, you know, the the quote from from Harry Potter where Dumbledore tells Harry, it's, "It's our choices that make us who we are," and you know, that's the only way we can judge others and ourselves is by the choices they make. And um, so, Garrick, we we can judge him a hero in the end because, you know, we see his life progressing to this place where he continually starts to make choices that are more sacrificial and less selfish, you know, which is, you know, a, a big part of storytelling, uh, especially like in the star Wars universe, obviously that's the big uh, question of being selfish or selfless, but that's also the the story that we see in a lot of storytelling. So I, I think, you know, getting plain Sybil Garrick here in the story, to kind of wrap him up. It It's interesting too, because by them doing this, it, it seems pretty obvious that, that, you know, this is something that they'll never touch, uh, you know, in other places. So, um, but, I think as we talked about in the comic section, you know, it really feels like there's going to be a lot of places for books to be able to pick back up again, because Picard hasn't touched a lot of things. Um, and so, Um, you know, depending on what else they're going to do, I I feel like that's going to continue. And so, um, one of the uh, the 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 themes of the book became this idea of of hope, and you know, in the very gritty section of the book, we see how people have no hope. On or Dev, you know, they they're addicted this drug, um, the crimson shadow, and because they just don't feel like they have anything to have hope in. You know, it feels hopeless as a situation. And, you know, it really asks the question of, okay, when people believe the world to be ending or, or you know, what do we turn to? What do we have our faith in? You know, and there's even a quote in the book about how the idea that the Cardassians were really wanting to be the people of the prophets. Uh, they didn't just come uh, to Bajor looking basically for resources and slaves, but they were looking for something deeper and that all their smug superiority and rationalism just weren't enough really, but they could never get over that, you know? Um, And it just really left me pondering that idea that all of us in life are looking for some kind of hope and we're all having to place it in something. And, really the question becomes in the end then, okay, is what we're putting our hope in strong enough to actually hold us in the times when everything falls apart? And that's a really interesting question that this book asks. And, you know, I think it seems to me to kind of be pushing more towards the idea that, you know, it's it's really those who have a more spiritual hope that are in a better place uh, than those that are not, you know, and because of the, you know, obviously we've seen that with Bajorans through Deep Space Nine, but we also, I think, see that here, is they're the only one really poised to be able to to handle the absolute trials and storms of life in a way that nobody else is really able to, you know? I mean, the Starfleet officers that are on or dev are are not equipped really to handle this the terrible situation that they're in, Um, and neither the Cardassians or the Romulans really. And, um, yeah, this really, really interesting, you know, to, to see that as kind of being more the answer, I feel like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, ultimately I feel like in this story, the Bajorans still kind of come out on top. Like you said, like they're, they've kind of always been that in Star Trek is, you know, the spiritual people, the ones that have this hope, they just put their faith in the prophets. Um, It it was really interesting to think of the Cardassians that way of of being so smug and, um, you know, feeling superior to everyone else just because they saw something they wanted. They saw that the the Bajorans were so far more advanced than them, that they made it to Ordev, so many hundreds of years before the Cardassians even had space flight. Um, And, and even during, you know, during the occupation, the Cardassians are running the place, but then the Romulans show up and want to take over where at the end of the book, the, the, you know, the Cardassians need a place to be and the Romulans won't let them have it. You know, it's like kind of a, the tables kind of turned, and and the only ones who really kept trying to you know look to the future and see the light, as it were, are the Bajorans. And they even welcome Garrick. I mean, he's mm-hmm. in a, a Bajoran yeah. guise, but I mean, they ultimately know that he's the one who has to go in the pa- back into the past and become this Vedic to lead them, right? But the fact that they did that, knowing that he's a Cardassian, knowing that he's the Cardassian mm-hmm. that essentially stranded them there, murdered their families, burned their temple, uh, that they would accept him with open arms and put their faith in him to go back in time when they you know, and they even they even acknowledged like he never really talked about the prophets, but he gave us leadership and guidance. You know, we just understood that he was talking about the prophets, even though he never explicitly did it. And, and just that, like, you you know, the brightness, you know, of, you know, the brightness in the eyes of the Bajoran people to, to have that faith in somebody, in, in their gods, in, and again, I use the broad term humanity, just as, as living beings that we're here to take care of each other. You know, I, I don't think that's something that the Romulans or the Cardassians really learned. But I think the group that witnessed this orb experience uh, at the end of the book, having the Romulan Tal Shiar agent, having a Cardassian, having I think, well, no, I don't think there was any other Cardassians there, but like having you know Starfleet there, like there was just um, it. It was it was kind of one of those things like he, he was like Garrick became that beacon of hope. I feel like for people that were, you know, there was the one Bajoran that had been chasing Garrick all his life and just had to watch him walk away into the past and, you know, ultimately felt like, you know what, maybe this is justice. Maybe this is, maybe I am fulfilled by, you know, my life's work that this was the best outcome here. And I I just feel like the, you know, the Bajorans have never really been my favorite of the alien species on Star Trek, but this book really I think um elevated them in my eyes as what almost in some ways what Starfleet and the Federation aspires to be. Yes. Uh that that beacon of hope, but um sometimes fails at and get called out by, by the Cardassians and the Romulans as hypocrites for it. Yep. Yep. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. And,
0: um, uh, I, I mean, for me too, uh, I just, uh, you know, B- Bajorans have always been actually one of my favorite, uh, races in, in Star Trek, mainly because of, uh, the way, you know, their spirituality is portrayed. Um, but no, I, I'm right there with you. I think, um, it just, it, it's such a, a beautiful story, I think, and especially where we end up with a character like Garrick, um, and you know uh, where we find hope. You know, it's a great question. Um, and one one last question I, d- I do have to ask you um, because both the Romulans and the Cartassians call Starfleet hypocrites, and so I do you think that th- they call Starfleet hypocrites because of all the Starfleet talk of non-interference and then Starfleet just interferes all the time?
1: Uh, it's, yeah, it, it, it was kind of hard reading those because it, it, at some level I would kind of agree because yeah, they, they talk all this non-interference then interfere all the time, but then there's other times where somebody asks them to interfere and they're like, oh no, we can't, we can't get involved in, in these internal, uh, internal affairs. And it, it's kind of that whole question of the prime directive of, you know, if it's, is it a rule? Is it a principle? Is it bendable? Like, you know, and it's, I, I don't think that the Romulans or the Cardassians are wrong necessarily, but I think, I think that they have both called Starfleet hypocrites for probably different reasons um and maybe the klingons that call Starfleet for the hypocrites for another completely different reason and at the end of the day i feel like everybody's a hypocrite in some way or another you know we all try not to be but you know we i, I like to believe that we're all trying to do what we feel is right and maybe that doesn't always align with everything that we say um because you know it's it's hard to call the Romulans or the Cardassians hypocrites because unfortunately we've they've both been in some ways kind of monocultures you know as, as far as viewers of Star Trek is concerned um, which I guess Starfleet and the Federation kind of seems like a monoculture sometimes too but I don't know it was it was hard to hard to read that because in like like I said in, in some ways I agree in other ways I'm like it's not that black and white.
0: Yeah, no, I mean I think that's one of those things where when you're on the outside looking in uh and you're just making snap judgments too, that's that's kind of what you would get. Um but I mean I think one of the things that Star Trek has always been about was that you know, we're doing the right thing and we do what is right when it's right, regardless of the cost and maybe even at the expense of our own rules sometimes because we got to do the right thing, you know? And so, yeah, it was just an interesting thing that happened in the book and, and them getting called out. Um, you know, I I don't necessarily put a ton of stock into uh, the Romulans or the Cadassians calling Starfleet hypocrites because I think, especially when it happens, um, they are kind of digging at starfleet uh in those situations uh on purpose and almost seeing to trying to get a rise out of people um and so um and yeah i think it's in the end every race every species every person is going to be a hypocrite in their life at one time or the other uh because we're all imperfect beings and we're never going to live up to our our best versions of ourselves um and that's just the way it is, you know? So there's nothing we can do about it. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm really interested, Casey, you know, as we talk to this book, I don't think we've had anything bad to say about it. So where are you ratings-wise with Second Self?
1: I wanted to give this one a five stars, but I I settled more on four and a half. It looks like, you know, it's a four on, or on um, Goodreads. Um yeah I mean I I don't have a lot of bad to say about it I I I think if I were to go back and read it again I could see giving it a 5 just seeing kind of with eyes open you know how the how the story actually unfolded um you know there was there was a lot of char- there was a lot of characters in this book and you know we didn't talk about most of them and I, you know, some of that kind of, I feel like, maybe got in the way of the story sometimes, especially once I was trying to figure out who was Garrick and who was not Garrick. Um, but yeah, overall, no, I think I think it's a, a pretty good four and a half for me. Where'd you land? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think I, I, I landed at a four with the book. Um, and, and for most of the reasons I think that you mentioned, I, I did also, I, I think... On or dev, you know, there's the valley to which nobody goes into, uh, you know, um, and that seems to me just to be a little bit strange. Um, that for so long nobody goes into this valley, just they don't even like, uh, yeah, that uh, that seemed like it just nobody
1: even really tries,
0: yeah, it just seemed a little bit weak as a story plot point. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I thought this was a good book, and I, I think. Uh, it's it's really well written. Of course, it's Una. Um, she does a great job. You know, I, I, Crimson Shadow, uh, from the Fall series, is actually one of the best Star Trek books I've ever read. But it was also just an incredible book in and of itself. Uh, and Una's just really good about doing that. You know, and so, and what's interesting is that I've I've continued this trend where I, I find in a lot of ways. The, the books that we're getting for the Picard series are sometimes more interesting than the seasons that we've gotten. Um, and so uh, in all honesty, what this makes me wish is that season three really lands the starship with that series um, and really brings it home. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I I hope that to be the case.
1: Well, it's always good to get a new Star Trek book. I feel like it's been ages since we've gotten one, and unfortunately, it's going to be a few more months before we have another one. Uh, which I think is strange, new worlds, but um, yeah, it's I, I'm I'm I just wish now that we got more. I want more Picard books mm-hmm. or characters.
0: Yeah, let's see, the next one is the new David Mac book. I think. Um, oh, yeah. Our, in, in Harms or yeah, Harm's Way, I think, is the is how, what it's called. So that's right. Which I'm I'm very excited about. But then yes, after that is is the Strange New Worlds book. But uh coming up for na- us next, we're gonna be talking about a Deep Space Nine book. Uh Warped, the first Deep Space Nine hardcover novel. Uh one of the few <laughs> that there were. Yeah. Uh so we're gonna be excited to dive into that. But uh Casey, uh before we get out of here, where can everybody find you if they want to catch up with you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on social media at Knitting Trekkie. I'm on Letterboxed, Goodreads, Twitter, Instagram. I'm also on Facebook in the Babel Conference, and I'm also on another podcast called Mickey's Marvels, where we talk about everything, almost everything under the Disney umbrella, which includes Star Wars and Marvel. So, um, or probably going to talk about She-Hulk at some point. We'll talk about Andor at some point and everything else that's coming. So, awesome. Awesome. Well,
0: uh, you can find me all over social media. Matt rushing 02, so Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd and Vero, you can follow me in any of those places under that same name. Uh, of course, I'm here on the network in the 602 club talking about all of our fandoms that we love, not just one. Of course, you got Snyder cuts and assembling Avengers in that same feed. Also doing The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. And then you'll find me over on the Nerd Party Network with two shows. One is called Owl Post. I did that with Drea Kaufman. Talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast, doing with the great John Mills uh, as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But... Thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long
1: and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.